Hello and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk About by Kangaroo Minds. I'm Vedika and today we have with us Dr. Rajesh Parekh. Dr. Parekh is the Director of Medical Research as well as the Honorary Neuropsychiatrist at the Justlok Hospital and Research Center. He's an adjunct professor of psychiatry at the University of Iowa and a former WHO expert on depression. He has been invited to lecture at the Harvard Medical School, the John Hopkins School of Medicine, the Yale University School of Medicine, and the Institute of Research in Neuroscience and Neuropsychiatry in France. Along with this, he has delivered over 125 international lectures and has an equal number of publications in both national and international journals. Dr. Parikh has a distinguished academic record and has won several awards for both his academic work as well as his interests. In 2021, he published two books on the coronavirus pandemic, as well as on the vaccination drives. And a lot of the forecasts that he made in that book based on scientific research have already come true. He is also a well-known voice on the pandemic. Today, we're gonna to talk to Dr. Parikh about how we can rethink and relook at mental health and mental illnesses. However, before we begin our conversation, I would like to put out a trigger warning for our audiences. If at any point during this conversation, should you find yourself feeling triggered or distressed, we urge you to take a step back and look after yourself. Should you need any additional support resources, you can also find them on our website. And now without taking up much time, let's hear more from Dr. Parikh. Dr. Parikh, welcome to the episode. It's so lovely to have you with us today. Thank you, Vedika. Lovely to be with you. Uh, thank you for that uh, generous introduction. I hope I can live up to it. Uh, thank you for having me on Kangaroo Minds. You are doing remarkable work and I am more than pleased to support it in whatever way I can. And of course, uh, you know, thank you for that trigger warning. I guess it's equally applicable to me. So I shall do my best not to distress people uh, in no. the course of so I, really, I really appreciate, you know, all your time and all the work that you've done. You've been such an inspiration, Dr. Parekh, and, you know, to have you with us today, to have such an important conversation. I think we're going to learn a lot from you. Let's but, hope you know, so. I'm sure. So just to start off, I'm going to ask you something. I'm sure a lot of people ask you this, but, you know, to set the conversation, since we're going to talk a lot about how we can relook at mental illnesses as well as mental health. So how would you sort of distinguish the brain from the mind? Well, uh, that's a deeply personal and philosophical question. Uh, it's a question that people have wrestled with uh, for centuries, literally going back to René Descartes and of course, uh, Freud and uh, before Freud, Kreplin and a lot of philosophers, whether it's right. Sartre, Karl Popper. So it kind of transcends uh, various disciplines. Uh, somebody, of course, summarized it uh, jocularly because uh, it is not entirely solved by saying that, you know, uh, what is mind, it does not matter. What is matter, never mind. So, um, actually, you know, over 10,000 years ago, perhaps even a little longer than that, uh, it was assumed that a lot of mental disorders arose in the brain. But it was assumed that spirits had entered the brain and caused these mental disorders. And the cure for that was a process called trepanation in which they drilled holes into the skull. But, you know, skulls have been found uh, which show these holes and presumed that that was to cure mental illness. But moving forwards, 
people like Kreplin believed that mental illnesses were rooted firmly in the brain. Freud, of course, changed all that with his uh, work uh, in the early part of the last century or century before, uh, you know, outlining the subconscious mind and the conscious mind and, uh, you know, talking about the aid and the ego and the superego. And that was the dominating force, almost taking on religious fervor in academic circles for a long time. And then again, with the advent of neuropsychiatry uh, in the 80s, uh, we are able to understand a lot of mental disorders as originating in brain function, in the structure of the brain, the biochemistry of the brain, the physiology of the blood flow of the brain. And that is now the prevalent notion. Uh, I am blessed to be a part of this field uh, from its modern inception onwards. And uh, this is known as neuropsychiatry. Right. You know, you've been a very, you know, one of the early neuropsychiatrists in India as well. But, you know, we'll come to talking more about, you know, the brain part. But, you know, what are your thoughts around, um, you know, the notion that, you know, we still look at poor mental health or, you know, mental disorders as being a character flaw or a personal weakness? Well, uh, you know, that is the biggest myth going around. In fact, the United Kingdom had a campaign almost 40 years ago, I think which was called uh, depression, an illness, not a weakness. So if somebody gets the flu or somebody gets malaria or even COVID-19 uh, to talk of a current illness, we don't blame the person. We don't say that this person is weak unless the person has been reckless been walking around without a mask and has been a, you know, anti-vaxxer, then perhaps some people might say you had it coming. But in general, when we look at physical illnesses, we don't see them as flaws in character and unless we clear that perception and you're doing a commendable job in that area we will put a double burden on people who are mentally ill the burden of the illness the burden of self-blame and added to that of course is the stigma and not seeking help right you know you you've looked a lot at you know like from a neuropsychiatry perspective you know like looking at mental disorders from both a biological as well as a neurological perspective so you know why do you feel that it is important to do that and you know like have conversations around that aspect of mental health and mental illness well i think it is uh, very important because we are then letting people understand that if somebody is depressed it's not a character flaw there is an issue in the basic functioning of the brain, the physiology of the brain, perhaps the biochemistry of the brain. And more important, it is correctable, that it can be treated. And when we start looking at mental disorders, the same way we look at diabetes or heart disease or even the flu, uh, we will be able to approach them with greater empathy and help destigmatize these disorders. Okay. So, you know, it's almost in that sense, are you suggesting that we somewhere start looking at mental disorders as, you know, brain disorders and not sort of associate them with the person's character or personality almost? Oh, absolutely. But on the other hand, I'm not suggesting any, in any way that they're exclusively brain disorders. Mm -hmm. They are social uh, disorders. There are other issues, environmental issues at play pollution lately is contributing in a strange way right. uh, to mental disorders. And so is the pandemic mm -hmm. and the isolation of the pandemic. 
So this is not in any way to emphasize that these are purely brain disorders, but yes, as opposed to character disorders, if you're making that dichotomy, then certainly the evidence is compellingly in favor of cerebral disorders, of brain disorders. So it's very interesting, you know, that you said that because, you know, we've all heard the stigma around mental health and mental illness that, you know, it's all in your head. So it's almost like you're suggesting it quite literally to a large, you know, percentage is very much a brain thing and it is very much in our head. But you also pointed out about COVID and I know you've written a book about this as well and you've researched on, you know, like past, not just COVID, but looking at other pandemics such as the Spanish flu so how do you feel that, you know, COVID has sort of changed our brains, especially in what has been the mental health impact that it's had on people, both, you know, who've gone through the pandemic, but also who suffered COVID themselves? Well, the latter half of your question is easy to answer because the evidence is there. Hmm. The first half, that how has COVID changed the brain? I think we're still struggling to understand it. But we do have precedents. Uh, which can help us in an analogous manner, perhaps, to understand what is going on currently somewhat better, if not fully. So, you know, when the Spanish influenza pandemic took place 100 years ago, uh, following the pandemic, and there were a large number of deaths, by the way, you know, 100 million people died in that pandemic. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they did autopsies on the brains of people who had died 30 years ago, uh, they found that some of these people who had depression, obsessive compulsive disorder and Parkinson's had actually structural uh, disorders and physiological disorders in a part of the brain known as the basal ganglia, which is integral to controlling. It's like a relay station. So the basal ganglia control our mood, some of our movements and even our behavior. And actually that gave an impetus to neuropsychiatry because now it was seen that illnesses, which say Freud believed to be as a result of childhood or developmental disorders, actually had correlates in the brain. And now we are beginning to see similar changes in the brains of people who have had COVID-19. In fact, some people have COVID-19 begin with uh, neurological or psychiatric symptoms. Uh, it's easy to understand because the pathway to the brain is shortest through the eyes and through the nostrils and COVID primarily uh, enters through the nostrils and it has a much shorter cut to the brain uh, than it uh, does to the lungs. Uh, so we are seeing it happen and uh, there are correlates because today one doesn't necessarily have to do autopsies. We have very powerful tools which look into the brain, uh, MRI scanning, PET, positron emission uh, tomography scanning, which is like a scan uh, which looks at the actual functioning of the brain in real time. Mm -hmm. So they are indicating. I've had a couple of patients who've had uh, severe mental disorders following COVID-19. So exactly how it occurs, we've not fully understood. But that it does cause uh, a tremendous impact on mental health, or the data is overwhelming from all over the world. Whether you look at depression, whether you look at anxiety, whether you look at OCD, all of these numbers have climbed uh, very quickly through the pandemic. And of course, then there's a social isolation, which is a stress and it's on the car. So that, you know, a lot of patients, I'm sure you would have also seen, are also struggling with psychosis. And I, do, I think they did some research around that as well, right? That post-COVID, I think patients are showing signs of, you know, psychosis or they're hallucinating. And that could partly be linked to the isolation that comes, you know, during quarantining as well. 
Absolutely, it could be the isolation. And I think, uh, you know, we have to train ourselves, Vedika, to not look at things too simplistically. Because as was once said, you know, oversimplification is a cardinal intellectual yeah. sin. So it may be a combination of the isolation and the virus. Right. And that could be a right. potent, that could be a potent uh, combination. And, you know, I've had uh, patients who have gone unbelievably psychotic. A woman who wanted to assault her grandchild of two years because she felt that this grandchild would kill her. And... Uh, and, you know, she'd only tested positive. She didn't even have physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. She only had no psychiatric symptoms. And they are lingering now for six, eight months. Uh, you know, she was about 80% better. But it's been a struggle of the last eight months to get her there. Right. So I think, you know, you also mentioned about, you know, brain scans and brain imaging. And you spoke briefly about, you know, MRIs and PET scans. So in a mental health context, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the insights that you could draw from these scans now? Oh, all right. So, you know, in the mid 80s, uh, the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine uh, started a neuropsychiatry program. I was fortunate to be the second inductee in the world in that program. And there I got to work under a brilliant pioneering neuropsychiatrist called Dr. Robert G. Robinson. And what he did was uh, very interesting and intellectually very stimulating. If we were to study how different parts of the brain affect our mood or our behavior, uh, we would see what happens when that part doesn't function. Because if that part is dysfunctional, you can correlate it with whatever change occurs in thought, mood, or behavior. And the best model of that was strokes. You know, people who had naturally occurring brain strokes. Mm -hmm. So he started work on post-stroke mood disorders and I joined in the very beginning. And what we found in a nutshell, because that's a lifetime's work, so I could go on and on. But what we found in a nutshell, uh, for example, in depression, that people who had stroke to the left part of brain were more inclined to be depressed than those who had on the right side, regardless of their handedness. And uh, the more proximal, the more forward that stroke was to the frontal part of the brain, the severer the depression. So we found two areas, the basal ganglia, which I alluded to when we were yeah. talking about uh, the Spanish influenza, and uh, depression uh, in the frontal, uh, as a result of frontal strokes. And then of course we did a series of PET scans and saw how this evolves over a period of two years. Uh, that to me, uh, you know, was my start in neuropsychiatry and I've been in that field now, uh, you know, for since 85, so just calculate the years, <laughs> a little short of 40. Uh, but uh, it's a fascinating field and it's grown exponentially since these pioneering studies that we did. Right. You know, another aspect of uh, mental health and, you know, mental illness, which is very commonly debated, is, you know, the nature versus nurture debate that comes up. You know, is this, and I know we briefly touched upon it in the beginning that, you know, there is a biological genetic basis, but there's also a whole psychosocial aspect to mental health and mental illnesses. So could you throw a little bit of light on, you know, the two sides of that conversation? Yes, you know, there is a joke, which rather there are two kinds of people. Those who classify things into two kinds and those who don't. Well, I'm in the latter category. Uh, and, uh, you know, while it's useful to classify, of course, it helps our understanding. But at the end of the day, it's a simplification. Yes. So there needn't be the nature versus nurture debate. I mean, we know from our experience in life, that nature and nurture are working hand in hand. 
they do so in a normal life right. you know noam chomsky's work indicates that there may be some programming for language but our intonation the way we speak our amazing accents even in the english language across the world uh, they nurture so a lot of our behavior is a combination of nature and nurture and so it should not be astonishing that some of our mental illnesses also are by products of the interaction between both right so you know in even just keeping that in mind also i know that you know a lot of times you know for the audience sake also sometimes given how much over complication happens in this space you know people do tend to break down and you know come up with these kind of concepts to better understand but could you tell us a little bit more you know from all the work that you've done over the years as well that you know sort of how does our brain change over our lifespan and how does that impact you know mental health and mental illnesses as well you know i could vedika but uh, i'm a little hesitant for one it won't be very relevant to the context of our conversation mm-hmm. today and uh, second which is the bigger sin is i'll end up boring everybody <laughs> so let's not get into those details of course the brain ages with time everything ages over time we see our hands age we see our faces age mm. we see our knees age the back ages we all age all the organs age it's not surprising therefore that the brain ages I mean, one indication of that, and I can say that uh, I kind of have a bit of that too. I've started forgetting names of people. I do remember other details, but I have lately become uh, somewhat forgetful. Which, of course, thank God, is age appropriate uh, and uh, not beyond so the brain ages in all of us. And you know, it has been said that our brain is at its peak at the age of twenty-four, at twenty-four, twenty-five, in our mid-twenties, our brain is at its peak. Thereafter, it's on decline mode from the age of twenty-five. but because the capacity of the brain is so huge we don't feel that decline as a result of neuronal fallout until we have crossed our 60s and in some i have seen they are uniquely blessed in their 90s they are as sharp as ever so okay. yes there are changes in the brain but there are different rates for different people and there too to come back again to what you alluded to earlier both nature and nurture play a role right so also you know since a lot of times there's this entire notion of you know where people view the mind and body as two different entities almost like a dichotomy between the two of them but what we don't realize is that a lot of times that you know poor mental health or mental illnesses can have physical health implications as well so could That's you both, both so ways we have hmm uh, both ways i think people have more or less understood now uh you know we all talk about it uh, that uh, you know when people are stressed their immunity comes down when people are low they get body aches in fact in eastern cultures for a long time there is a concept of somatization somatization mm. uh, sometimes ironically called smiling depression these are people who experience physical symptoms of depression fatigue mm. listlessness pains and yet they do not necessarily uh experience the mental equivalents in fact these are called depressive equivalents uh, the point is they do respond to antidepressants dramatically the physical symptoms so when we are anxious we've all been anxious at some time or the other you feel butterflies in the stomach feel lightheaded palpitations sweatiness mm-hmm. so that is quite well known but now what is also emerging is the other way around the body influences the brain if you're not in good health mm-hmm. uh that can affect uh, the brain of course and now there is and that kind of tells us about this mind body integration 
uh, lately the gut biome, all the bacteria in the gut, as I'm sure you're aware, the good bacteria and the bad bacteria connect with the brain through the neurons. So sometimes clearing up the gut with proper treatment helps people to come out of depression. I'm not saying it happens all the time, but there is tremendous interaction with, uh, between the body and the mind. In fact, it is one unit again. We don't need the dichotomy. You know, Rene Descartes is sometimes, I think, unjustifiably blamed for his Cartesian view, you know, the x-axis and the y-axis. And while it does make a lot of sense mathematically to have those coordinates, uh, they certainly help in navigation, but to stretch that Cartesian dichotomy into everything uh, doesn't always help us. Right. You know, like for instance, you know, that very often, you know, people with depression complain that they have migraines. For instance, yes. how do you how do you know? How would somebody know? You know, for someone who's watching this right now, like since we're talking about you know, okay, mental health is very much in your brain. Uh, how do they know whether they need to go to a neurologist or a psychiatrist, or if they have the ideal combination like you, a neuropsychiatrist? Like, how do they know where they need to go? Vedika, first thing we need to know as people in the helping profession, and you're one of them, is that the cardinal rule is to empathize. So if you or I had a severe migraine and it was hurting us, what would we want first? Do we want to be told who to go to? Do we want to be told that this could be psychological mm. or this could be want relief? You want immediate relief. Okay. So the first thing they need is symptomatic relief. <laughs> Mind you, it's not a cure, but it's symptomatic relief. Uh, sometimes the things are very, very simple. Uh, not always so, but very simple. Uh, you know, a closed, dark room, to lie down it for a few minutes. For some people, coffee works. There are various, various home remedies which can be tried. Uh, it is important for the person to figure out what the triggers are. But I guess you use migraine as an example. You're not asking me what do you do for somebody. No, no. But if somebody is going through any physical symptoms, mm -hmm. you need to first work out a way to give that person symptomatic relief. And in that sense, migraine is a good example because almost everybody has experienced a headache at some time or the other. Now, you know, if I have a headache, and you tell me, okay, Dr. Parekh, let me try and understand what your childhood was like. And, uh, you know, have you had these symptoms? My headache is going to get worse. It's, it's not going to go down. So I think we need to relieve that. It could be just a crocin, for example. And then when we have the luxury of time and uh, the other person has some relief, uh, that's the time to go into what came first. And sometimes we don't know. But if we recognize that it's a vicious cycle, the migraine can make somebody depressed and that's what usually people will say that oh if you tell them are you depressed of course wouldn't you be depressed if you had a migraine like mine so what came first did the depression come first did the migraine come first did both come together these are academic questions they're important undoubtedly important for research but in the real world we need to empathize with people give them relief and then get on to a way of preventing them ideally without any medication right so in that sense, what, how would you distinguish the role, you know, of like the neurologist from the psychiatrist? Because people but may not know where to start. They could start either ways. They could start a good psychiatrist. will know what his limitations are. So will a good neurologist. And in an ideal scenario, neurologists and psychiatrists work together. So for example, in the mid 80s, when I had my training, I trained for two years in psychiatry two years in neurology. And it was a combination of both experiences, which uh, enabled, enabled me to be a, a neuropsychiatrist. 
Now, of course, not everybody has access to a neuropsychiatrist, so they could go to either. It doesn't really matter. Actually, the ideal first stop may even be their family doctor, uh, if it is something like migraine. Of course, if it's something which is more nuanced, more complicated, then they need to make a choice. So often also we don't talk about, you know, how several mental disorders have very high mortality rates. So, you know, could you tell us, you know, why, why is that the case? I'm not sure we know fully why we uh, do have some conjectures, but what you're saying is absolutely true. Whether not just mortality rates, but even recovery rates. Hmm. Recovery rates from physical illnesses are more depressed. We did a landmark paper, the first paper of its kind in the world. We published it in uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, if I remember right, sometime in the late 80s. And what we did is we matched two groups of patients who had post-stroke depression, okay? Or other word, who had uh, lesions, similar lesions in the brain. One group was depressed, the other was not. But in every other way, they were comparable in terms of the degree of physical impairment, in terms of uh, the size of the stroke, the more or less uh, the location of the stroke, not always the location. But these were comparable groups of people who were physically impaired, age matched, gender matched, left, right handed matched, matched in every way. So when we were matching in everything, the numbers shrunk, of course. But what we found is that people who were depressed did not recover as well as people who were not depressed at the end of two years. So depression following stroke impacted physical recovery. You know, this has been seen time and again. And, you know, sometimes when you chat with doctors, they'll tell you that they can tell in the first two weeks which patients are going to recover faster and which are not. And the patients who are cheerful or optimistic, they're the ones who recover. And sadly, the ones who are depressed don't. Uh, so even on physical recovery, there's an impact. And therefore, not surprising, there's impact on stroke. So there was another study which was done. I was not part of that study. It was conducted after I left, but used the data that I had collected. <laughs> the data that I had collected, then over 20, 30 years, you know, some of these uh, patients uh, did not survive. Now they looked at mortality rates in post-stroke mm-hmm. patients and they found the ones who were depressed, uh, you know, they died earlier than the ones who were not. So this is the area I work, but in all other areas, heart disease, etc. As I said, we don't know the exact reasons why, but uh, depression clearly impacts recovery and mortality. I know like, you know, linked to this, I mean, again, I might be simplifying it, but, you know, we did see that in a lot of Western countries, there was a lot of advocacy that, you know, people with mental illnesses should be considered to be high risk and should be given vaccinations as a priority group. Yes. And I think there was a lot of that in India as well. There were a lot of people who asked or felt that, you know, that people with anxiety disorders or depression should be considered high risk and vaccinated first because they might, you know, be more susceptible to picking up the virus. No, you're not oversimplifying at all. There's no oversimplification, Vedika. I would go a step further. We're all high risk. Whoever is not vaccinated is high risk. And mind you, they're not just high risk for themselves. They do not realize they're high risk for their families, for the elders in their families, and for society as large. So, you know, in our second book, which became a national bestseller, the one on vaccination, and, you know, as you pointed out, we wrote that even before vaccination started, that, uh, you know, everybody should get vaccinated. I'm a great proponent of vaccination. I have, of course, been vaccinated. I've had my boosters twice. Uh, I think it's not only a service to ourselves, but to society at large. 
Right. But you know, why do you feel, or you know, how does this tie in with the whole, you know, that people with mental health conditions should be considered a priority group for vaccines and boosters? They should, because what has clearly been documented, not necessarily in COVID, but for ages before that, in uh, both clinical and laboratory studies, is that depression affects immunity. At the cellular level, if you take blood samples and look at the immunological markers, uh, in these people, the cells that defend us, the globulins that defend us, uh, there's a difference when people are not even depressed, people are stressed. Stress affects immunity. And I think if we look back, we will all remember a time when we were stressed and then we got the flu. So you see it all around you that stress does affect our immunity. And uh, so it makes sense to bolster that immunity with vaccination, particularly in people who are depressed. Then there's another factor. Sometimes people are so depressed that they do not have the enthusiasm, the zest for life, the joie de vivre, and uh, they've given up. So they don't really care. They're beyond vaccination. So okay, whatever comes, let it come. And then you need to encourage these people because they're not taking vaccination, maybe yet another symptom of the depression. And that too may make them vulnerable. Then they may also be extra vulnerable in not taking adequate precautions against the virus. So yes, in that sense, they do pose a fairly high risk. Yeah, I was just going to come to that. You know, there are a lot of times people with poor mental health or, you know, who might have more serious mental illnesses will not look after their own selves. So personal hygiene might be compromised. They may not wear masks and they may not be, you know, like hand washing and sanitizing as much as they should be. Absolutely, Vedika. You're, you're right. Bang on. Well, you know, moving forward, uh, there's a lot of stigma, unfortunately, which still exists around medication for mental health conditions. Like we would never shame someone who's taking diabetes medicine or, you know, a BP medication that, you know, going to pill shame them and be like, you know, why are you taking this? So you don't need to take this. But we still see a lot of that when it comes to mental health conditions. But there's, there will be people who need, you know, pills to make their brain work better and that's perfectly fine but how do you feel you know we can counter that stigma and you know what are some myths around medication for mental health that you know you would like to call out okay now let's get to the myths first first is that medicines make you dependent that you'll be taking medicines all your life it's a complete myth most of my patients the vast majority i would say maybe as close to 90 percent 85 to 90 percent are off their meds in two years Okay, some even lesser. This is the average. So you're not on it. That all these medicines are habit form. Mm-hmm. Third, that taking medication is a sign of weakness. That means you're not strong enough. You have mm-hmm. to take a medicine to get well. Uh, so all of these are myths. But having said that, I do respect the right of people to make decisions. I would be the first to emphasize that medicines are not the only approach and should not be necessarily the first approach. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they could be, but they don't necessarily have to be the first approach. That counseling has a very important role to play. That psychotherapy has an important role to play, particularly in disorders like anxiety. That yoga, meditation, exercise, mindfulness, a lot of other things are important. And sometimes people make the choice. And uh, when they do make the choice, I respect them. I tell them to keep medication as an option. And sometimes you need more than one approach. Mm. It's like a journey that you take. You know, you don't just take a journey by air. Yeah. You may choose to walk part of the way. 
you may take a cab to the airport you may either take a plane or you may prefer to sail it all depends on multiple factors and individual needs so while i do advocate that if necessary one should take medication i'm the first to admit they're not the only approach they're not necessarily even the best approach one has to judiciously decide first whether somebody needs medication or not you know when i was a medical student one of our, my favorite professors dr manu kothari uh, used to say that a good surgeon is one who knows when not to operate mm-hmm. and uh, you know i like to tell the students that i trained and i have trained quite a few in different parts of the world that a good psychiatrist is one who knows when not to prescribe mm-hmm. so i think the message is important on both sides for people like you and i who are in the helping profession that we shouldn't go overboard with medication but also to the people we are trying to help that do not shy away from medication if required any as you said it i think it's very important that you know we have that balance between if you need it it's okay and there's right. no shame in taking it but there are also other options available and like let's be open to seeing you know what could help or possibly as you said looking at a combination of options you know like not just medication but also certain lifestyle changes And but there's one other thing, no, oh, Vivika, uh, and that I, I, I just I just recollected lately. Right, lately. I mean, over the last ten uh, years. So that's not really lately. At my point in life, it becomes lately, a lot of years. But uh, you know, lately I've been seeing people come demanding medication. They've researched all the stuff on the internet. They've figured out which medication will work best for them. And sometimes they're right. I have to admit, but not always. And they'll come and say, you know, doctor, I know I have depression. I don't want to waste your time. i have done this scale and i'm really moderate to highly depressed and x drug is the best drug for me because of this 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 reasons and you know you if you prescribe it to me i'm sure i'll get well well i i'm never critical of this approach i'm never never critical it's very very important patients are well informed okay and i say i even that that is fine one of my colleagues will take a detailed you know one and a half hour two hour history i will go over it with you we'll see what the options are and if this medication is a possibility i'll certainly prescribe it you know why because it's also going to have a placebo effect you know the person believes that medicine is going to help them there's a 30% chance just that thought is going to help them so if possible i try to accommodate it and you know i am discovering lately and particularly in the younger demographic people your age they've really researched it. it's not a superficial research mm-hmm. they spend hours sometimes they'll come with a file full of printouts and once in a while i have to admit every now and then i am impressed because you know they have come up with something that came up just yesterday and i might be two days or three days late in catching up with the literature and uh, then i am honest enough to admit that wow you know you printed this out yesterday i didn't uh, read the journal yet i will read it if you don't mind come back after a week and once i am i have caught up with you <laughs> we will say we'll have a discussion <laughs> that too happens I think it's very interesting that you know you brought up this whole aspect of you know like self researching and you know sometimes you've seen that there's this competition with something like Doctor Google. But what are the dangers or most of this? You know because as you said, I've I've seen it a lot myself. You know where the younger generation has researched, they use very clinical language when they're talking about their problem. But sometimes do you feel that they're you know again oversimplifying what they're doing, like feeling you know that somewhere we Overcalized mental illness. Yeah, they might. They might. But so do we. <laughs> We're equally guilty of that. 
and where do we get our knowledge from i can't now buy books and keep reading them i would you know if i bought a book and start reading the book i'd be at least 2 years behind the literature so i am also going to doctor google in a sense except it's pubmed or except it's a new england journal of medicine the lancet and nature or whatever but i'm also reading off the net so who am i to decide that i can take my knowledge of the net but you cannot you know it's like i mean i'm taking you back in history but you know i am a student of history so you'll have to pardon me this excursion but when gutenberg you know invented the moving type when the printing press started it liberated people because everybody was ignorant and power was concentrated in a few who passed it from generation to generation and deprived the others and therefore retained a tremendous control over their lives the printed word freed people now people were free to read newspapers magazines all of that was available yes there was a negative side to it but it's enormously outweighed by the good and so also i believe about the internet so also i believe about google uh, you know it has benefited us all of us me included far far more than it has caused harm now anything in excess is going to cause harm if you just keep randomly crossing the road up down up down up down going nowhere sooner or later you're going to get hit people you know have a sip or two of wine enjoy a glass of wine it can enhance the flavor of their food if they just keep doing it all the time it's going to take a toll but because some people do it in excess and perhaps injudiciously uh, we can't blame the tool we don't blame the knife you blame the person who wields it and yes we must understand we must empathize empathize vedika uh, you know people are anxious and sometimes they put it to good use as i told you i have young kids come up to me with something that appeared in the journal yesterday which i have not yet read so i have to appreciate it i have to admire them for it and sometimes even thank them for bringing it to my attention right i think it's be open about it i think this wholesale condemnation you know what and you know again they were doing the same thing we are uh, you know giving names whatsapp university and stuff like that to condemn uh, people's information i mean whatsapp has played an enormous role during the pandemic of course it's caused an infodemic also mm. which is a secondary problem but i think with all things we have to weigh what is useful and what is not and generally veer ourselves gently but surely in the direction of what is helpful right you know you mentioned that you know sometimes like you know with the way literature and information is changing sometimes that you know you find that you know you get left behind and we've seen that there are a lot of new terms which have come up right either there have been new conditions which are being diagnosed such as you've got i think complex post traumatic stress disorder you've got now post um, i think it's pgd right prolonged grief disorder has come up in yeah. the new dsm as well and at the same time you're also having a renaming of a lot of disorders so i think bpd is now emotionally unstable personality disorder so how do you think that somehow affects you know the knowledge and the perceptions that people have and also for you like in your work do you feel that it see uh, vedika let me make a disclosure in the beginning i'm an eternal optimist okay by temperament i'm an optimist i see good in most things and almost everything i see some good as knowledge evolves naturally nomenclature will also evolve <laughs> you know to give you an example uh the inuit eskimos i believed until recently and only one word for anything that flies so whether it's a bird or a plane or helicopter anything there was just one word for any object that went through the sky 
but they had about 60 different words for ice mm-hmm. you know depending on the consistency of the ice the texture of the ice the hardness of the ice how quickly it melts the different different words because that's their world so mm-hmm. you know they would say ice they'll give you 50 different words for ice so as knowledge develops our naming of words our renaming it all progresses and i watch it with interest because i want to learn i'll give you an example when my daughter nikita when our daughter nikki was just 3 or 4 years old uh, you know we used to play word games i was trying to get her to improve her vocabulary she already had a great vocabulary but i was trying to enhance it and but i was also fascinated by the things that uh, the new language that she was doing with her friends on cell phones so i told her well i'll teach you five new words every day but you have to teach me five new words so she taught me a word in those days now of course it may have even fallen out of fashion but which was gtg she would write to a friend gtg so i would ask what is gtg mean she said it's got to go i said okay she said what does it mean she said it can mean five different things got to go means my dad and mom are around and i cannot talk to you anymore okay got to go means i'm in a rush got to go means i'm bored i was fascinated i said this is such efficient use of language in three letters you're communicating quickly to somebody your age oh host of them i asked her how will she know which of these things matter she said, oh she'll know she know when the gtg is because dad is around i can't talk to you or gtg is because i'm bored or what so there's a context there's a nuance so i am really amazed and uh, you know i'm fascinated i mean look at language it, if you look at the evolution of language 5000 years ago it started with hieroglyphics there were signs and even uh, today even the chinese and the japanese alphabet is a large number of hieroglyphics but our language evolved to such a degree and now what are we finding we look at these emojis and one emoji is conveying so much to another person who understands it mm-hmm. so language is evolving nomenclature is evolving and we can't stop it Okay, as Bob Dylan sang, you know, a long, a long time ago, the times they are changing. I mean, in simple words, you got to go with the flow, right? <laughs> okay. So no, I'm picking the words, but anyway. So we're talking about times changing. We're having a lot of conversations about the new normal as well. So in terms of mental health and the way perceptions change, you know, what is something you'd like to see more of? Well, I'd love to see change. i'd love to see change i'd love to see young people like you doing the kind of work that you're doing because this is something we could not do uh we either didn't have the talent for it or we didn't have the knowledge for it or most certainly we didn't have the tools for it and uh, so i'm excited you know until 3 years ago i didn't own a cell phone my children convinced me to start using a cell phone and i think they in their own way simplified it for me and said that think of it as a computer that you have in your pocket you can check your email so they sold me on the idea and i did finally get a cell phone uh, there was about 6 months before the pandemic and what a boon it's been through the pandemic mm-hmm. so i i get excited by you know new tools new things that are coming i am sometimes resistant to i shouldn't take full credit for it i mean the flip side of not having a cell phone you know all these years is also there but it enabled me to write to think to have conversations without interruptions so in my lifestyle one without a cell phone was fine but when it became necessary luckily just before it i had it so i'm very excited about the work that people like you are doing and then say kind of you you know you've been really supportive but 
And just, you know, to sort of bring things towards conclusion to everything that we spoke about, we spoke a lot about the biological aspect of mental health. So how do you feel that, you know, things like, let's say, our sleeping patterns or our eating habits or even our lifestyle choices in that sense impact our mental health as well as, you know, play a role towards mental illness or can exacerbate mental illnesses? I'm a firm believer in it, not just from the literature that I have read, but also from my personal experiences. So, you know, for the longest time from childhood, I just need, needed a very low sleep requirement. I sleep for four hours, four and a half hours through most of my life. And then as I grew older and I read more about the effects of sleep on health, and there's a huge body of literature. Now that's a discipline in itself, you know, sleep. But a body of literature of the impact of, you know, reduced sleep on health and particularly mental health in the context of what we're talking So I gradually increased my sleeping time and now try to sleep seven hours a day. But I have noticed that on days when I sleep less, I'm forgetful. I become slightly irritable, which I like not to be most of the time at least. And I do find changes. I, I, I experience this. Likewise with food. So yes, uh, both in my personal experience and in the stories I hear from my patients and my colleagues. Remember, I learn as much from my patients as I am able to help them. Sometimes I learn even more fascinating stories from my patients. Uh, so in all of that, and of course the literature, the academic literature, above all, it's the data. All clearly indicates what you're saying, that sleep, appetite, lifestyle, our close personal relationships, our social connectivity, all of that plays an important uh, role in our health. And by the way, just two days ago, I read an amazing National Geographic cover story on uh, social connectivity and health. <coughs> I would recommend it to all. Uh, if you can get the issue, nothing like holding it in, in your hands. I'm old-fashioned, of course, but mm -hmm. even online, even online. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a neat encapsulation of the issue that you raised and would speak more eloquently than anything that I could possibly tell you in a few minutes. No, no, but, um, you know, thank you for that. And I want to ask you that, you know, are there any parting words that you would have to anybody who's watching or listening to this right now who could be having a hard time with their mental health? Oh, I, I am not a sage, Vedika. You make me out to be some kind of a prophet, which I am not. So what does one say? You know, let's all work together. We need to do this together. Okay. And... Please do not look upon a mental health profession purely as a caregiver. We like to call ourselves caregivers, but I think we are participants in the same voyage. And some of the people who are going through this should also understand that there are a lot of people, particularly post-pandemic. Okay, a lot of people have gone through it. Even some of the people who help you are going through it. I have experienced prolonged grief in my life uh, when I lost my mother and I was not around at that time. I was in the U.S. And the closure took a while. We've all gone through what you're going through. Of course, perhaps not to the amplitude and the duration that you're going through, mm -hmm. but there is a way out. There is always a good and a healthy way out and we can work in it together. So you have to be an active participant in your care. Forget what they tell you about Dr. Google. Go to Dr. Google. Go to the internet, read about it, read the stories, but with the caveat, you know, the internet is a free for all. Mm. So just be mindful of the sources that you read. 
talk to people uh, you know people like vedika people like me we're there for you have a conversation with us but get started you know it's a wonderful bright world and life is too short we must try to enjoy every possible thing thank you so much for that and you know dr pai thank you for your time and all the insights that you shared i think it's been very enriching and i'm sure people are going to draw a lot of hope from this but also a lot of learning that you know there is you know help out there there's hope out there so anyone who's having a hard time know that it gets better you know you're not alone in this somewhere you know as even you said dr parik we've all got covid has sort of given us a common lived experience so you know just reach out for help and it gets better vedika you gave the best parting words you asked me but your answer was the best you're not alone in this i think five words five <laughs> words i think they summarize it you're not alone in this it's no, been marvelous chatting with you thank you for having me on your thank program. you and so till next time please stay well and stay healthy thank you